Welcome to Myth versus Craft. Kenny Aronoff might be the busiest drummer in the world. The list of people with whom he's collaborated is jaw-dropping, as well as a testament to his hard work and versatility. He's played and recorded with everyone, from John Mellencamp, with whom he played for 17 years, to Bruce Springsteen, Paul McCartney, Brian Wilson, Sting, Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash, Stevie Wonder, Mick Jagger, John Fogarty, and many, many more. Beyond being a phenomenal drummer, Kenny is a consummate professional. The discipline, dedication, and speed with which he prepares for every gig, big or small, is astounding. If you were a record producer and you were hired on a Monday to start recording that Friday, you couldn't pick a better drummer than Kenny, regardless of the type of music. Not one to rest on his laurels, Kenny is constantly setting a higher bar for himself. In addition to his session and live work, he's an accomplished educator and now an author. His autobiography is coming out this fall, and I'm very much looking forward to reading it. The book is called Sex, Drums, Rock and Roll, The Hardest Hitting Man in Show Business, and you can already pre-order it on Amazon. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Kenny, it's a real pleasure to speak with you. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I read that as a kid, you were first drawn to the drums when a marching band came by your house during a Memorial Day celebration. Do you remember how old you were and how you felt? Yeah, I was in the second grade, and I remember I had this, like, uh, one of these bikes, you know, that had one big fat tire, and there were no <laughs> there were no gears. I'm laughing because I still think of myself as a little kid. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I had, a, you know, a big fat tire, and I had, I put, you put streamers, streamers through the spokes, and then you put maybe three or four uh, baseball cards and attach them to the metal uh, fork on the front tire or the back tire, and you put a clothespin on those baseball cards, and when the spokes go by, the cards would, you know, hit them. So you get this, blah, 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 blah. It sounded like you had an engine. But this town I grew up in, and I talk about it uh, in my book. Yeah, Stockbridge. Unfortunately, the marching band thing, they left that part out. The marching band, the, I'd go down to the, the center of town, which was only 3,000 people total, and there was no, no traffic light there when I grew up. and. Um, a lot of artists, a lot of, uh, you know, the Boston Symphony Orchestra was, uh, would come up for the summer, uh, in the next town over. You know, we had potters. I used to go to Norman Rockwell's house. He was an illustrator painter. They had, uh, actors and summer stock theater up there. It was an amazing, amazing place to grow up. But when this marching band would come to town on Memorial Day, when that drum line got off the bus and started their cadence, I went nuts. <laughs> and so I would just follow them with my bike, the entire experience of them marching from one cemetery to the next. It was awesome, man. And then the next big thing was seeing the Beatles on um, the Ed Sullivan show uh, when I was 11. Me and my brother, was, twin brother, was so hyper-energetic, running around the house, and my mom screams, says, come into the family room, and we thought we were in trouble. And there was the Beatles on TV, and it completely stopped me dead in my tracks. And I, I basically saw it, and I was flipped out. I mean, there was there was nothing good to watch on TV back then, and this was like a drug. This was like a, an adolescent drug to me. The the whole energy of rock and roll. And I turned around to my mom and said, "I want to be in the Beatles. You got to call somebody up. I got you got to get me in the Beatles." And there was like silence. And then I said. <laughs> I want to grow my hair. I mean, I want to grow my hair. I want to play the drums. Silence. I said, I, I want girls going crazy over me. I want to <laughs> rock, man. I want to play drums. You know, finally, my mom wasn't answering me because she was dancing and jumping up and down watching the Beatles, you know. And then I realized that wasn't going to happen. I wasn't going to get the Beatles. I started my own band called the Alley Cats. And I could only afford a snare drum and a cymbal. And uh, I was gardening. You're not going to believe this. Gardening at 25 cents an hour. Some lady, 25 cents an hour. <laughs> saved up enough money to get a snare over the symbol. And I started my, I was in my first band. I should say my parents lent me the money. I paid it back. And then we, you know, we did Beach Boys and Beatles music. Five months later, I, I made my parents take me to see the Hard Day's Night in the movie theater called the, uh, in a town nearby. And that just made me even more crazy. 
the cool part of the whole story is that 50 years later, I was performing with the, the with two remaining Beatles, Paul McCarty and Bengal Starr, on a PBS, not PBS, a CBS special, honoring them for that exact night, the, you know, the night that changed America, you know, the, the Ed Sullivan show, and it would give the exact night that I saw them, February 9th, 1964, wow. 50 years later. And, and then that same year, I got to record with Brian Wilson. When I was 11, I was playing Beach Boys music and Beatles music. 50 years later, I'm, I'm now performing or recording with two of these iconic, you know, uh, artists or bands. And it's, it's just, and then like, the message is dreams do come true, but I worked my ass off for it. Uh, dreams come true only if you work your butt off. And anybody who's listening that loves being lazy and entitled, you will not succeed if you do not work your ass off. Because even if a dream did come true, if you haven't put in the time and the effort, you will not sustain any dream that comes to you. You have got to, it's been proven, you have got to put in the time. And not one year, not two years, but your lifelong years to get to a place where you can succeed. And if you fail, you have the strength and the tools and the, the whereabouts to come back at it again, to succeed again, because I've had some failures. But that never stopped me because I had spent so much time developing a strong foundation from working hard and repetition, repeating and repeating things over and over again, which made me successful. Repetition is the act of preparing yourself to be successful. It doesn't matter if it's drumming or academia or raising a family. It doesn't matter. It's anything you do. It's developing a skill over and over again that makes you great at what you do. So dreams come true, but they don't just fall out of the sky. And if they do, you better have put in the time to be able to hold on to that dream. In preparing for this interview, it was clear that hard work has been a constant for you all along. The first instance of it that really stood out to me was that I read that when you graduated from high school, you spent the entire summer before college practicing eight, nine hours a day to catch up to all of the incoming college freshmen who were going to be going to UMass with you to music school, but who had been classically trained from a much younger age. Did that work? How did you compare to your peers that first year at UMass? I was way behind, and I was terrified. When I talk about the seven keys to successful life, the first is called self-discipline, is where it all starts. And I learned that in my junior year, I was terrified of, of chemistry. My MO was going to school to socialize, you know, chasing girls and all that stuff, what normal guys do. And, you know, just, you know, hanging out was popular. And then sports and then homework and then rock and roll band practice. To cut it short, I learned how to study in my junior year because I was terrified to take chemistry. And I got an A in chemistry, A in physics, and A in advanced math. And I learned self-discipline. In 18 years old, to get back to your question, at 18, there were no rock and roll drum teachers. There was nobody that was my mentor in a small town or anywhere near there that could teach me how to play rock and roll drum. So I was self-taught. But in my sophomore year, I saw, noticed there was one kid in my school that was getting better. And I asked him, man, what are you doing? And he says, he was studying percussion with the principal percussionist, Arthur Press, from the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And I went, wow. And he says, you should take a lesson. So I did. That was one of the a life-changing moments because the guy was very tough. His first question when I, I got on a Greyhound bus and went from Stockbridge to almost where Boston is in Newton, Mass. I got, and when I met him, he says, what's your name, son? I said, Kenny, Kenny Arnoff. And he says, what have you prepared for me today? And I went, huh? Well, have you prepared a mallet piece for me? And I went, I I've never played mallets in my life. I was really feeling intimidated. He says, well, have you prepared a timpani piece for me? I went, ah, you know what? I've never played timpani before. And he looked at me like, what are you doing here? And I said, I play drum set. So he put me on a drum set. And in, in about 
less than a minute, he yanked me off that drum set. I was playing to a Blood, Sweat, and Tears song called Spinning Wheels. And he said, he pointed to a practice pad. So we started from scratch. So I was studying percussion with him and eventually got me into mallets. And he gave me some drum set exercises. But he was trying to get me into mallets, timpani, snare drum, all classical literature and technique. And in my family, we all went to college. So when it came time to go into college, I I didn't know what to major in, but I decided, I mean, music was so important to me, I picked music. I was not as advanced as a lot of people are going from high school into college in classical music because I was into being a rock drummer, which is obviously my M.O. <laughs> and look how it all worked out. So I was behind because I didn't have anything to do with the marching band in school or the the concert band, and I just... I just thought, why would I want to play with squeaking clarinets and stupid strings when I was playing, you know, Hendrix, The Stones, you know, James Brown, rock and roll in a rock and roll band in clubs at age 13. Why would I want to do that other stuff? This is way more fun. You know, girls and, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll, the whole excitement of rock and roll. But when it came time to go to college, uh, there was no rock and roll schools back then. And so I, oh man, I was behind. So I got into UMass barely. Uh, the teacher accepted me because he saw that I was so intense about trying to do, be great that he thought he would enjoy teaching me for four years. He saw that I was a spitfire, you know, just an aggressive, go after type guy. He thought that'd be awesome. So I got in, but I, my gut told me I was going to be way behind than I was. So I was practicing mallets three hours a day, timpani two hours a day, snare drum two hours a day, and then maybe an hour on drum set, and playing uh, in a jazz trio five nights a week. That was my summer while everybody was partying. I was full on. That was the beginning of part two of my seven keys, which was hard work fueled by passion and education. Yeah, and when I got there, I was way behind and. I wasn't comfortable following a conductor yet. My reading abilities weren't great, but I slowly but surely raised my ability up. On on Fridays and Saturday nights when everybody was out partying, I would practice till they kicked me out of the building. Then I'd go party. You know what I mean? I felt like I needed to catch up. And that that teacher there saw that I was aggressive. He made me do a recital in front of the whole music school at UMass, but after six weeks being in the school, I had to play marimba, a little sweet piece on marimba. And uh, I mean, I'm, it's in the book. I mean, I'm terrified. Can I walk out there? This was a huge education. These are moments in your life that are life-changing. So check this out. I've memorized the piece, very comfortable in my practice room, right? And without a lot of distractions, my mind is very focused. Well, when I walked on stage to do this piece, when I look out there and I'm not behind the drum set and I'm not playing the Rolling Stones or Hendrix, I'm looking at this marimba and the piano player starts playing and I miss my entrance because I'm looking at the marimba and with all that distraction and being nervous, it never occurred to me to tell myself what physical note was the first note of that piece, which was F major, F above middle C. I just automatically went to it. But now when you're nervous, when I asked myself, hey, what's the first note? I didn't know how to answer that because I'd never had that discussion with myself. Eye-opening moment with regard to detail and how the little things can crush you. I sat there and the piano player looked up like, whoa, anytime, Kenny. <laughs> and I was, fuck, what do I do? I found the note and I came in and I played the piece perfectly after that. But that was an eye-opener for me. Uh, anyway. That first year was a lot of catch-up. But I should say something about myself that I didn't, wasn't consciously aware of back then, but now as I, when I wrote my book, I realized, you know, that my success is based on being a workaholic, extremely addictive to work and, and pushing the limit. And you do that long enough, and you're going to go somewhere. That year, knowing that uh, I wasn't the best percussionist in the school, and it was only a, a school for music ed, mostly, you know, teachers. I, want, I felt like I needed to be in a performance environment, you know, an environment where 
get the best percussionists that are trying with the best teachers to get to the top. And Eastman School of Music, which was one of the top three music schools in the country, Indiana University being number one, Juilliard and Eastman, two and three, I auditioned for Eastman in the spring, I think. My dad drove me up there. I asked him to take me there, and he, he was very, they were very supportive, my parents. And I thought I did get in. 20 years later, I found out I had gotten in. I'd been rejected because there was no room for me because the school only accepted 14 students a year so that everybody wow. get, gets a play. You know, they didn't want people staying around. Your parents they all spend all this money. I was a transfer student. They were accepting no transfer students that year. And uh, I didn't get in. All right, that's one move. In the spring, this hot cellist, I heard that she was going to this place called the Aspen School of Music in Colorado. I immediately looked into auditioning. And also, I heard it was run by Juilliard, and I heard it was an amazing program. Once again, way above my abilities, but I wanted to, you know, what the heck. I should say I was fortunate that I was raised in a family where you go after your dreams and that they made you feel like you could do anything, which really helps when you hear that in your head. You start to believe you can do anything, even though it's beyond your where your abilities are at the time. Anyway, so I, the audition said, prepare three pieces out of four ca- four categories. One was timpani, the other was mallet, the third was snare drum, and the fourth was multiple percussion. Multiple percussion. And so I prepared on all four areas, thinking that, you know, being an overachiever, uh, maybe I'd get in if I did all four areas. And they asked for scales and technical exercises, and I sent the tape in and never heard from anybody. So I figured that summer I'd go home and study with Arthur Press again. I had a killer Almond Brothers type rock band and I had a girlfriend back home and I, the last day of school I loaded up my dad's car and I'm driving away and I went, oh shit, I forgot my mail. And I went back and drove back. It was like a couple miles out of town. Go back, I got my mail. Son of a bitch, I got accepted to Aspen. Now that's life changing, dude, because I'll tell you what happened. I probably got accepted because I was, uh, somebody uh, canceled, you know, in the last minute. Because you get accepted two weeks before. That means somebody bailed at the last minute, I think. That's my opinion. Anyway, I went to Aspen. Holy shit. I thought that UMass was a learning curve. This was a whole nother level. So the coolest thing is the picture that was taken of all of us back then. First of all, I'm the worst percussionist there. These kids have been playing marimba since they were eight. They could barely see the marimba. And they were playing classical music. And since they were these little kids, and with the Juilliard Prep and Oberlin, and ah, this was wait. Well, I was rocking and playing in clubs, watching chicks get drunk and try to pick me up. I, these kids were seriously practicing hardcore classical music. They were amazing up there. Could read anything. Way, way, way above me. But when you look at that picture... I'm the guy that became the famous guy. I mean, rock and roll does that. You know, when you become famous in classical, I mean, you don't really, there aren't that many famous, except for Vic Firth, you know, the, the timpanist of the Boston University, who became one of the greatest stick makers of all time. It's a different thing, but in all fairness. But that just shows you how the hard work and persistence really prevails. Your ability to be successful, it doesn't happen overnight. Anyway, up there, I was humiliated, had life-changing experiences. It's in the book. Embarrassed. The conductors are just ridiculing me in front of everybody. But the teacher up there, George Gaber, was an extremely deep, heavy, brilliant, philosophical type of man, besides being a great percussionist. He taught at Indiana University. I said to George Gaber, I want to go to Indiana University and study with you. He said, Oh, that's nice. You know, why don't you come back in January and audition? I went, no. I want to audition right now. I'm not wasting any time. I want to go to Indiana and study with you right now. Long and short of it, I auditioned up there. They had to find faculty from four different departments at Indiana University. That's the rule. You have to audition for four different departments. It just so happened there was teachers from four different departments teaching at Aspen. So I audition, I get in, I go right to IU, now we're at the biggest music school in the country, if not the world. Super competitive. I mean, this is huge. Five orchestras, three jazz bands, percussion ensemble, 
symphony band, concert band. I mean, you're taking a full load conducting music history, music theory. You're taking you know, a small ensemble, large ensemble, private lessons. You're taking regular academics, English, math. This is the number one music school in the country. And now, in one year, I went from being terrified to go to UMass, going to UMass, auditioning for Eastern, getting into Aspen, transferring to IU within one year. And my point is, not stroking me, but objectively, that's a man with a mission. That's somebody who is looking for opportunities and seizing them as he sees them. Not easy. They're not slam dunk. It was obvious in the sense that I felt like I should do it, but this was not the easy path at all. The easy path would have been stay at UMass and be the hot dog at UMass, graduate with honors, you know, be the hottest guy there. But I went the hard route. And in the summers, I studied with Vic Firth. I spent four years, every summer from my freshman year, trying to get into the number one summer program run by the Boston City Orchestra called the Fellowship Program at Tanglewood. In my fourth attempt, I got in, where I got to study and work with Leonard Bernstein, the conductor, Aaron Copeland, the composer, conductor, Arthur Fiedler, and this was the best student orchestra in the country, if not the world. I did it, you know, graduated, and I decided I wanted to study drum set, finally. There was no drum set teachers at any of my colleges, none. So I started studying with uh, Alan Dawson, who was a Berkeley teacher for 20 years, but a great jazz drummer. And I started with Gary Chester out of New York, who wrote the famous New Breed book. And I was starting to practice eight hours again. And I realized, oh my God, what have I been doing? This is what I want to be doing. Basically, I'd rather play in a club for $75 than to be in an orchestra wearing a tuxedo getting a regular salary, teaching at a university, you know, raise a family, do it the easy way. And I decided, nope, I wanted to be a rock and roller. And that was the beginning of my second life plan, which was, once again, I wanted to be in the Beatles. I spent a year at home in my parents' house. It was very humiliating to be back home. But a year later, I went to Indiana, formed a band, because I thought we were going to get a record deal, go on tour. Was that Stream Winner? Yeah, very good. You did your homework. These are serious musicians. One of the dads invested 30000 We got a, a truck and lights and PA. And to get in clubs, we played Steely Dan. And we were playing Weather Report. And we'd walk through the audience playing percussion instruments and get on stage. And, and they'd break into a song. And it was cool. And then we started playing more commercial stuff. It was great, but we're not going to get a record deal. So I thought I'd better go to L.A. or New York. It's funny. I never considered Nashville. And it was only... A, Four and a half hours down the road. I just never even thought about it. Anyway, I'm about to leave town, and I basically hear about this Johnny Cooley guy looking for a drummer. I was going to go to, I was on my way to L.A. to audition for Lou Rawls. I was packed and moved to New York City. Somebody, a guy I went to school with said that Lou Rawls was looking for a drummer, which was not really my style of music, but man, I mean, he, the way I looked at it, he sold 40 million records. He was very popular. This would be maybe my ticket to move to L.A and get started there. I didn't win the audition. I wasn't the right guy for the gig anyway. And I I got an audition with Mellon Camp, and that was a life-changing moment because I won the audition, uh, and it gets real heavy. I mean, the way I prepared for it, I memorized every single drum lick on his Johnny Cougar record. Very simple music. I didn't understand the simplicity at all. I didn't understand what I'm an expert at now. But as I was playing it, I was really digging it because... I was basically going back to what I was doing when I was 13. But I had to learn how to play lessons more. Instead of looking through a telescope, I had to learn how to see the world through a microscope, the other direction. And the night before we were going to L.A., I only had five weeks to prepare for making a record. As soon as I got in the band, we had to make a record in L.A. John was looking for me to come up with ideas that would make his songs play. And I did not have the skill set to get his, to come up with drum beats that were simple and easy, that would be hook line-ish, that would create the right vibe, beat and feel for his songs. 
my fusion ideas were not applicable to, you know, his music. So there was a lot of tension. He was frustrated. As a matter of fact, when I won the audition, he went upstairs. I only played two songs. He went upstairs and yelled for the guitar player to come up. And Mike Wanchek and Mike came up, and then Mike came down after 10 minutes and smiled at me, shook my hand, and said, welcome to hell. I went, wow, what does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) And I found out later. The night before we go to L.A. to make this record, I told everybody I'm going to L.A. I'm so pumped. I'm so excited. I feel like I'm alive. I'm happening. I went out to dinner with the producer, Steve Cropper, and uh, we were supposed to be back at, at 7. The way John ran this thing was like a business. We would rehearse from 11 in the morning till 5 at night, take a dinner break from 5 to 7, and then rehearse from 7 o'clock to 11 at night to midnight. Five days a week, like a business. We rehearsed in a place called the Bunker. It was basically an old dog kennel that was built into the into the ravine of his property. It was like only 20 feet long, 10 feet wide, with like an eight-foot ceiling, and two little teeny portholes for windows that didn't even ever get direct sunlight. It was a bunker. It was a sweat lodge. So I ended up staying out two hours late with the producer getting shit-faced, and of course, I thought everything was cool because I was with the producer. I come back, and the band had come back before me because they knew better. I come back, and John was sitting on a road case, his head down, sweat rings under his arms. He's furious. His head down, but his eyes are looking up at me like a rabid dog. And he goes, Aronoff, you're fucking fired. <laughs> How about that? I'm like, now I'm like, What? And Steve Crocker immediately went, hey, John, man, it was my fault. I kept him out. John looked at him and pointed his finger at him and said, fuck you, Steve. He doesn't fucking work for you. He works for me. And that's when I went, oh, my God, what a fucking idiot I was. That's exactly right. I don't work for Steve. I work for John. If I worked for a corporation, I would have been fired. You don't go out with somebody. I was told to be back at seven. It was a wake-up call, man. This wasn't mommy and daddy, man. This was hardcore. And John got up and walked in the house. I chased after him. And next day, I was on the plane, and I had my job back. But two days later, I got fired again. I didn't have the right drums. It was 1980. The drums I had were fiberglass pearls with single drum heads. Some of them had, you know, no bottom Single toms with no bottom head was big in the 70s. You stick the mics underneath, mic the drums. It was a great way to control the sound. And I saw great drummers, you know, playing with Gino Vanelli, like Casey Shirell and Mark Cranny, who had played with Jeff Atal. And, and, and these guys all had single headed toms and hit the Harvey Mason. It was really popular. But in 1980, it all switched over in pop music to double headed drums, scratch wood shells. I was, had the wrong drums. Steve Cropper had seen there was tension between me and John. I get a phone call. I wasn't delivering what they wanted, and Steve had to get the record done quick. As we all know, especially back then, you built your entire album on drum tracks, live drum tracks, very little edits, and you just, you know, you get this live feel uh, with a great live sound. They brought in some two professionals to do it, the replacement. John had called me down to have a meeting at somebody's room, and John, this is a life-changing moment. John told me, listen, you're not going to play this record. I'll pay for the rest of the week, and you go home, and blah, blah, blah. And I said, no, not going home. Nope, not going home. You don't have to pay me. I'm telling you, I didn't know these words just came out of my mouth because I was, <laughs> I'm not a fight-or-flight kind of guy. I'm a fight-or-fight. It's all fight. I'm not going to flee unless it's, you know, I'm going to get killed. And I was not going home. I was humiliated. I wouldn't have been able to live with myself if I went home. So I said, look, am I the drummer in your band? And he looked at me perplexed. And I didn't even know what I was saying. I went, well, uh, well, well, if I'm the drummer in the band, I'm going to go to the studio. I'm going to watch these guys play my parts that I came up with. And I'm going to watch them. And I'm going to learn from them. I'm going to benefit from what I see and learn. And because I'm your drummer, you're going to benefit. It was silence. And everybody's mouths were dropped. And I said, you don't have to pay me, and I'll sleep on the couch or the floor or whatever. And what could he say? I mean, okay, I don't have to pay him. (laughs) And 
in his interview in my book, I didn't know this. First of all, I thought John had fired me. No, it wasn't. It was Steve Cropper that had wanted to get other drummers. John, in the book, says, dude, he said to Steve, I'm not firing Kenny. I, when we go back to Indiana, I still need a drummer. You know, these session guys aren't going to join my band. So that was really crucial that I stay there. And I did learn a lot. And I went home and did my typical eight-hour-a-day practice routine, lifted weights, became a vegan. You know, I just felt like I needed to clean out, get really focused. And I had to first show that I was good enough to do that. So I went on tour opening up for the Kinks with John and proved that I could be a session guy. And man, I'll tell you what, we did nine weeks of recording. I almost got fired again, or I felt I was going to get fired, coming up with that drum break in Jack and Diane. That song was off the record. Nobody knew what to do with it. We didn't know how to arrange it. Somebody brought in a little drum machine. I was disgusted to see that thing. I grabbed it, programmed it, and then went hibernated in the the uh, lounge and played pool. So the next thing you know, they're asking me to do a drum solo, and we spent a day getting a big drum sound that nobody knew how to do back then because everybody had drum kits in the small vocal booths. I come up with this drum solo on the spot, fighting for my life, fighting for my career, and I score a touchdown. After nine weeks, and it felt like nine years making that record, I go home, John calls me up two weeks later and goes, hey, Aronoff, we only got four songs. I went, no! John had fired two guys in the band on the session. It was brutal, man. It was tough. The label wanted to drop us. They thought we should be like a Neil Diamond band. They didn't get it. We go back with that tail between our legs. And John starts writing songs. That's what we came up with. Hurt so good. And we just started to find our sound, which was a less is more approach. We kept thinking we need to do more. When we recorded Hurt So Good, which I did playing left-handed, because I was trying to dumb my playing down by playing more simple. So I started practicing left-handed, so I would play simpler. And um, when I and I recorded that song playing left-handed. If you listen to all the Tom fills, my right hand is playing all the fills, and my left hand is staying on the hi-hat. Keeps that, like a shaker part still going. Anyway, after we recorded Hurt So Good, I remember listening to the playback, because I was all like, God damn, I have to play all these stupid, simple beats. Stuart Colburn and Jeff Picaro, they get all cool beats. So when they were playing it back, it was really loud. John wanted the drums really loud. I suddenly got it, man. I could hear all the nuances and the feel and my personality and my vibe and everything coming through those speakers. I realized the power of less is more. It was unbelievable. And the vice president of the label came in and heard it. He didn't like it. didn't get it. John walks into the door, kicks him in the ass with his boot out of the street or under the <laughs> sidewalk and basically said, fuck you. I think we got dropped. Which makes sense. <laughs> And what happened was somebody test, mark, test marketed Hurt So Good on two radio stations around America, and it tested huge. People went nuts. It's got a record deal back. That record, American Fool, was the number one record of the year. John won two Grammys. We had two singles in the top ten. Hurt So Good went to number two and stayed there forever. Jack and Diane went to number one. We had two in the top ten the same week. We were MTV's, you know, new bands. We were all suddenly, who the hell is John Mellencamp? Who is that drummer? And that was the beginning of my career. That was heavy, man. It wasn't easy. You stayed with John for 17 years, and I believe you left in 97 when he decided to take a long break. You'd already been doing a ton of session work. So I figure you didn't have any trouble staying busy. Was it a relatively smooth transition for you? Well, the transition actually happened in 91. He took, no, 80, no, no, 87. The end of 87, the Jude Lee tour, I'm standing there with a champagne bottle in my hand. and Who knows, maybe I had chicks under each arm too. And John walks up to me and goes, after the show goes, I fucking quit. He threw a bonus check at me and said, don't spend it one place. I'm taking three years off. And I put the bottle down So quickly calculated in my head that I only had enough money saved for bills for five months. I just got divorced. I wasn't making the lion's share of the money. John, John's deal, I was just an employee. And I didn't make any publishing. So I was freaking. I thought the glass was half empty. 
But now I realize the glass was full. The glass is always full. My point is, when I thought that I was, this was a disaster, this pushed me into a fight or fight mode again, I came to LA and started pushing to do session work. And people were receptive because I had this great drum sound of the 80s. It was all over the radio. A couple people thought, yeah, let's hire this guy. And I found out I was a good session player. And finally, Don Woods hired me for the Iggy Pop record. And uh, he won, he won, one night he went to the Grammys. And he won two Grammys for a Bonnie Wright record, Nick of Time. And Love Shack, I beat him too. Next thing you know, he was getting called to produce everybody. And he was hiring me. So I did Bob Dylan, Bob Seeger, you know, Elton John, people like that. Next thing you know, I had launched a session career. So the glass was full. When you think something, whenever you think your life is a, is a, is a mess, it's not. It, it, it may feel that way at the moment. It may appear in every way. But this is an opportunity. It's like when people lose money in the stock market, this is an, that's the opportunity time to buy. The market's low. And this is what happens when you lose your job, when you get divorced, or you flunk out of school. This is a chance for you to rebuild yourself and learn from your mistakes and become stronger and better and wiser. That's what mistakes are all about, man. That's what disasters are all about. They teach you to be better. And that's what happened. I launched a session career. When I got back with John in 91, there was some tension there because I suddenly had I was making more money doing sessions, and I, I took myself off retainer and, uh, so I could have more control of my life, and it created a... I, get, I totally get why John didn't like it. He had a band, man. I was focusing on just being a drummer. He was focusing on marketing, getting records in stores, writing songs, getting them recorded. Uh, he was running a business, so he was way more intense, and I was just happy to be, you know, I was now making money, so I was really happy. Life was perfect. I wanted both. I wanted to stay in the band, but I wanted to set. John wanted me to be all to, my, to him at a moment's notice. I get it. So in 96, when I was on tour with Bob Seger, that's when we decided it was time to part. And uh, it was sad, man, because I, I really truly am a band guy. I love being in a band, but I like to be treated like a band guy, an equal band guy. And uh, I just that I never had that experience before where I was treated equal. So it was time to move on. And I had this huge career, both of, you know, recording in L.A., Nashville, Indiana, and New York, mostly. But, you know, Canada, Europe. Uh, I ended up working, you know, with big, huge artists from Italy, Korea, Japan, Germany, you know, all over the world, Mexico. I've been all over the place. It's been an incredible career. Let's talk about your session work. I uh, had Tim Pierce on the show a few weeks ago, and I asked him how he handles situations in which he's brought in to record guitars in place of the band's actual guitarist. Have you been in any awkward or many awkward situations where you were recording drums and the band's drummer was actually in the studio? Oh, yeah. I've had a few experiences like that. The first thing I do is I go to the drummer and try to make him feel comfortable and let him understand that I was in his shoes once, you know, when I got replaced in Mellicamp's band, and that I'm not trying to take his place in the band, but to watch me and learn from me like I learned from the other guys is only make it better for you. That answer is very similar to, uh, to Tim's answer. You've worked with a ton of producers. Yeah. What are some of your favorite qualities in a producer? Uh, I love a producer that has a deep vision of the big picture. There's different types of producers. Some, like Don was, or Glenn Johns, you know, uh, or even Andy Johns, his brother, where they hire you because they know you're the right guy for the gig. They're like directors, and they're casting their band to give them a sound. And what they do is they, they just let you do your own thing. They may have a few suggestions, but all in all, they just give you a general idea and then you run with it, and that's why you're there. I love that. I have a, a, a saying, which is, as a session drummer, I have to listen, I have to learn, I listen to the producer, the artist, the other musicians, I listen, I learn, and then I lead, because I'm the drummer. I, I count off, I, I lay down the beat, I 
sorry, the dynamics, I bring it up, I bring it down. But the last part is the key thing, but I'm not the boss. I list, listen, I learn, I lead, but I'm not the boss. I like the producers that let you do your thing. But I've been with producers that are anal about every note, and that's a different approach, and that's cool too. But my favorite is where they let you, they hire you because they want you. I love that. Most musicians prefer to track live with the whole band. You do a lot of session work on your own because speed and efficiency are more important than ever. If you were to run an experiment and record the same song twice, once with every track recorded individually, and once with everyone playing live, do you think most people would be able to hear the difference in the performance? I would hear the difference. Right. I know you would. The, the artist would. The producer would. But do you think the general audience, do you think most people would hear it? I was, was going to say at first, yes, but now I'm thinking more and more it's swaying the other way because the audiences now are used to hearing records made with from the drumming aspect. They're listening to records that are made with easy drummer, you know, a tune track sample, uh, drum groove packages, uh, sequences. They're listening to program drums or they're listening to real drum tracks that have been put on the grid and, and lined up perfectly with no uh, flow of slower or faster. And then they're used to hearing samples put on all the sounds, which takes a lot of feel away. They're used to hearing this digitized sound that comes from when you're not playing as a, as a band. And that has become a more familiar and more uh, popular sound of today. Not what I like, but because it's popular, and let me add to it, listen to all that through earbuds. This is a, this has become familiar to the newest generation of listeners, so I don't know if people would uh, really care anymore. Uh, uh, you know, I think less and less because it's moved on to a new generation of listeners. I'm not putting it down. I'm just stating the facts. I get the sense that you would always find a way to make a session work, and you would do whatever it took. But can you think of any sessions where things just weren't gelling between you and the artist or the producer, and you ended up parting ways? There's a few. I can't remember them specifically, but I'm sure that what would have happened is, and this happens to any great musician, when you're a session player, They record you, and then when the record comes out, you're like, oh, that's not me playing, because they decided, but they decided, it's not just that you played bad, because they had a different vision. Right. A different vision. And the vision that you, when you were there, was one vision, and the new vision is different. Now, as far as getting, because I mean, I like, I did a Cinderella record, that was badass. <laughs> Still climbing. It spent a million point two on it, but only sold 60,000 And that's because, well, it's because the whole genre of sound changed. There was a hitter band, and now grunge was in, so it wasn't oh, popular. Right. It was a great record, though. Uh, but anyway, my point is, I replaced two other drummers, and their drum tracks were amazing. But for some reason, they decided to start fresh with the third drummer, which is me. What happens is, I identify, the most important thing is to identify there's a problem. And what happens is a red flag goes up. I can feel this tension coming from the producer. And then I get one little feeling is one thing. But then when I feel it again, I was like, mayday, mayday, we got a problem here. <laughs> You're gonna, you better adjust and make, figure out what's going on. What does that guy want that you're not giving him? And that's when I step up my game and become that fight, fight, fight guy. You know, hopefully that takes care of it. I've uh, heard you say that when you play drums, you approach it like an actor would approach a role. You get into character, and then everything you play stems from that character. Was this a conscious decision? How did you develop this approach? Oh, it wasn't a conscious. I just started to realize when I started going from like you know Bon Jovi. Literally, it was one two week. It was a two week period. It was like one out of Blaze of Glory with Bon Jovi into an Elton John session into a Bob Seger session, flew to Atlanta to do Indigo Girls, which was quite different. Back to LA to do Bob Seger, then to Nashville to do Willie Nelson. Or another week where I recorded with Hank Jr. 
country, the Buddy Rich Big Band, and a, another country artist in Canada, and a Cinderella, all within a two-week period. And I started realizing every one of those sessions stylistically was different. So I kind of looked at myself like I was an actor. Like, you get to get into the role and the how you mentally and emotionally feel and vision you should feel affects the way you hit a drum, touch your hands, your feet. And that's how I came up with that. Looking back on, on your career, how has your classical training affected the way you drum? Oh, man. That's a good one. Um, the big thing about classical training, and I remember thinking like, God, why did I do this? Oh, my God, I wasted all those years, and I was really bummed out. But the classical training taught me discipline, taught me how to work as a team player, taught me how to, you know, you're not the boss, man. You got some tough muscles up there. Conductors are going to rip your ass apart if you don't fucking give them what they want. Taught me how to practice my ass off for, for excellence. And it taught me a phrase that I, I didn't state until maybe three years ago. It's called, I'll never be as great as I want to be, but I'm willing to spend the rest of my life trying to be as great as I can be. It's basically the human condition. I call it the human condition. It's like a, a running back in football. He doesn't get a touchdown every time. He might fumble even sometimes, but he keeps focused on the end zone his entire career. And at the end of his career, he looks at the stats, and then that's when he realizes, wow, I'm one of the highest scorers ever. And classical music, in that school studying, you just felt like you could never be as great as you wanted to be. You were being pushed so hard to be great, and you just couldn't reach that goal, and you get you get used to being in that zone, you know? And also, a big thing that's paid off for me, big time, it taught me to read and write music. That's how I'm able to take on so much. People go, man, you're the hardest working guy. God, I wish I could do as much as you do. Well, some of it is because as I'm on a plane, right now, right now, I'm holding 17 charts for a record I have to do in Moscow. I'm also holding, in, in May, I'm also holding 14 charts for a record I have to do next week in Massachusetts. I'm also getting music for a PBS special that's coming up in April. I mean, on and on. And I just played with the Bodines, and I have that thought, that all those charts up. I could not possibly go from one gig to the next and, and memorize all this stuff. I have to be able to read and write music too, to take on so much work all at the same time. And the reading and writing and to be able to read and make it sound like it's live is taken, God, 20 years, you know, 25 years, I don't know, taking a lifetime to make it sound like it's live. I've uh, had two guests on the show, both of whom uh, have played with you and, and speak very highly of you. Philip Sace told me that you had a very deep influence on how he approaches music and, and you made a big impact on him. Can you think of any role models who have influenced influenced you in a similar way? First of all, that's awesome that Philip said that because man, he's he's an amazing guitar player. He is. He's a bad mofo. He and I together, it's all about a deep, 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 full on passion. When he influenced me by playing with him, it motivates me that I'm a, a big thing about being a great, successful person in any field is to be able to listen. Listen, and then you know how to react and do your part. Know what you want to do, but listen and watch. Because it may affect how you, what moves you make. Influencing me, well, Mitch Mitchell was one drummer because he was a jazz drummer that played rock. And that's what I was as a little kid. I grew up listening to jazz. So Mitch Mitchell was huge. He was the rock drummer that I can relate to the most because he played jazz. and He had a swing factor to him. And I aspired to be like that, like him. That's one guy. And there were a lot of jazz drummers that I kind of tried to emulate, but I couldn't play like them, not even close. You know, I was blown away by, you know, guys like Elvin Jones, Buddy Rich, Louis Belson, Gene Cooper, you know, stuff like that. And eventually, John Bonham became a huge... John Bonham has got... He's the ultimate rock drummer with the ultimate sound and feel and ideas. And it's very a great musician as far as knowing when to play something and when not to. And his 
execution was always amazing. Another bad drummer would be Steve Gadd because of his musicality, his touch, his feel, his phrasing. You know, there's a lot of great drummers out there, though. I mean, so many. I love Dave Grohl, Taylor Hawkins. Uh, I, I could go on and on and on. Uh, most drummers blow me away. <laughs> they, all have, they all have something special. But, I mean, there are people that inspired me that aren't even drummers, but they're musicians. You know, uh, Hendrix blew me away, changed my life. He was iconic to me. I ripped all my posters off my wall and put just him up. The only thing I saved <laughs> is one poster of Jane Fonda naked on the beach. <laughs> um, the other uh, the other guest that played with you was David Grissom, who was oh, one of the first awesome. people I had on the show. And he also spoke very highly of you. And, and when I asked him you know, if he could look back at what he thought were the keys to the success he's had. He mentioned you and the influence and the opportunities you gave him as, as being one of them. And uh, when I told him that I'd be speaking with you, he asked me to ask you about the Roach Motel. Does that ring a bell? Absolutely. The Roach Motel. <laughs> okay. There was a, um, when I got in Stream Winners, the band, when I moved from uh, Massachusetts to Indiana, we rented a house called the Roach Motel. It was, uh, seven people lived in it. It was facing this big, big, um, downtown of Bloomington, Indiana, college town, facing a big meadow called Dunn Meadow. But around that meadow was like, you know, huge campus buildings, like a big, uh, a big, the, the, the union, they called it the union, uh, where they had a hotel in it and lectures in there and classes. And, I mean, and so what we did, was we would, my room say, was the porch that got converted into uh, all seasons uh, <laughs> living space. Yeah, it was a porch. So, and the cool thing is I had my own entrance. So I would have girls coming in and going out, and <laughs> girls knocking on the door while I was still with the girl in my room. It was crazy. And in the living room, which is the other side of my, my room, the outside walls, two out, three outside walls of the outside, and then the back wall was, um, the living room. And uh, we had all of, a lot of our gear set up in there and uh, we would practice in there. But a lot of times we would put those speakers and point them out to a gun know, and cops would come by and shut us down. We had parties in there all the time. It was like, man, we were the roaches. But I'd say there was always about a quarter inch to a half inch of beer all over the floor. <laughs> and it was party central. It was great, man. You know what it was? It was like, it was like old school. Right. <laughs> that movie, old school. It's like, yeah, that's what it was like. I read that after the single Hurt So Good with John Mellencamp hit number one, you enjoyed it for about a minute before you started. No, it, it was uh, Jack and Diane I enjoyed for a minute. Oh, okay. Sorry, I got that one wrong. But you enjoyed it for about a minute before fretting out about how you were going to follow it up. You'd never become complacent. I know that. But are you ever able to sit back and enjoy yourself and your achievements? Uh, I'm like a squirrel. I go after a nut, I put it in the closet, and then I go after another one. I, I, I don't listen to a lot of stuff I've recorded. I usually don't like it. I always think it could be better. Uh, I'm always looking forward. I'm a guy who always wants to get a touchdown. I love the fact that I have all those touchdowns, but I'm thinking of the next one. I'm just wired that way. And the writing the book was a wild because all it was like I had to open up the closet door with all those acorns and they all came flying <laughs> in on me. And I kept I kept um from nineteen seventy seven I kept calendars of every gig, every rehearsal, every everything. So when I wrote my book I just went through those calendars and listed all my live gigs, all my sessions and my personal life. And that's how I wrote my book. I had that. I'm really impressed with my playing. <laughs> Outside of music and exercise, which I know is very important to you, how do you blow off steam? What do you do to, to break away from music, or, or do you not? Well, to, well, first of all, if I break away from music, I'm working on, you know, uh, other things, that other aspects of the, the Kenny Arnold brand, and making charts, getting ready for sessions, writing a book, uh, editing this, uh, working on my... My one-man show, I mean, it's just endless. It never stops. And then there's just normal daily life stuff. You know, stuff comes up all the time. You know, house stuff and stuff. But to chill, the best way for me to chill 
<laughs> is practicing with a pad or lifting weights, watching a movie in my gym. It's like multitasking. Or if I go to bed and I really want to just chill, I'll read, try to read more. Uh, and the other thing is watching movies. I do like movies. The reason why I like movies is I get lost in them. I want to get lost. I want to get totally absorbed and lost. I want to be in that movie and, you know, not get away from everything. Yeah, I love that. Over time, has it become any easier to say no to gigs or to opportunities? I have a hard time saying no. It's always yes, and then I figure out how to do it. The no thing, it's it's so hard to say no. And I have juggling, a lot of juggling issues, you know. Like I uh, book something, and then all of a sudden, that's like for two days, but I get a, a tour. Oh, here's a good one. I was supposed to do a Chris Christopherson special with a team of people that always like to hire me. But then I got asked to do a Joan Jett tour for three weeks. It was hard to turn that down because that was three weeks versus four days. And I typically like to honor my commitments. But I, I, I really needed to take that gig because it wasn't just four weeks. It was another gig with her, too. So that was disappointing to the to the people when I bailed. And I, I don't feel comfortable with that. That bugs me. I, I, feel, I really feel I felt like I just stabbed somebody in the back. By now, I mean, you mentioned how it was it was such a milestone to get to play with Brian Wilson, Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr. You've played with most, if not all, of your heroes. Is there anyone out there with whom you'd really love to play but haven't had a chance to do so yet? Oh, man, it's a lot of people. Uh, I love to record with David Grohl. I like to record with Sting. I played with Sting. I like to record with him. I like to, um, oh, people, just great musicians. There's so many of them. Jeff Beck. Love to always want to play with Jeff Beck. And we played on the same records, Blaze of Glory by Bon Jovi. But Jeff Beck played on that? Yeah, and he was a guitar player. It's a famous story where John called me up and said, I got good news and bad news after going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I said, what's the good news? If Jeff Beck is going to be on the record, what's the bad news? He wants Terry Bosio to play on the record. Uh. And then the co-producer called me up five hours later after I'd been pacing all bummed out. And says, hey, Kenny, have your drums there on Monday at 9 o'clock? I said, dude, have you talked to John lately? He says, no. I said, we better talk to John because I'm not on the record. And then he, he said something that was very educational. He says, there's no fucking way Jeff Beck is going to sit there and track 12 hours a day while we're trying to learn a Blaze of Glory song or whatever song. You bring Jeff Beck in to just play a solo a couple of times and he leaves. I went, wow, okay. So he says, no, you're the tracking drummer. We want you, no disrespect to Terry, but you're the right guy for this. And so, yeah, that's, I went, ah, uh-huh. interesting. I would love to play with him, you know, live. That would be so awesome. You mentioned that your uh, autobiography, which is coming out this fall, uh, that the first draft came in at 600 pages long and you had to cut it in half. Can you think of any particularly painful edits, you know, stuff that you removed that you really wish could have made it into the book? Oh, man. I mean, they said, like, for example, I thought it was important to describe my upbringing. All I wanted was two lines, you know. I said, because it was such a great upbringing. I wanted to say when I was a little kid, I, just, despite all the great times as a little child, I did have to climb under my desk in third grade because I was alive during the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, it's terrifying when you hear that alarm go off, that siren that reminds you of World War II. You dive into your desk because literally Castro and Russia were going to blow missiles into the United States. It was that heavy, number one. And the death of, you know, John F. Kennedy really freaked me out and Martin Luther King and people like, you know, Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison dying. I mean, this was young kids in Vietnam. I did talk about Vietnam. But these are some of the things that, that were left out that I thought were really significant. There was a lot of stories in depth that got left. But, you know, <laughs> the, the title is Sex, Drums, and Rock and Roll, the hardest thing band in show business. And I clarified that this book is not about me having sex with 4,000 women. It's more about getting off on when I get a call from Rod Stewart or Brian Wilson's people or Elton John or, you know, Johnny Cash or whoever. That's what this is about. And playing the drums is mental, physical, emotional, and 
spiritual and sexual. It's got a sexual energy to it. You know, whether I'm flirting, I've always flirted with my audience here in the front. That's what I'm talking about. But there was some, <laughs> I had had some, a few sexual wild experiences to make it real. And I, I decided to take them out because that wasn't the actual theme of the, uh, of the book. Kenny, I know how busy you are. And I sincerely appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Awesome. Well, man, thanks for having me. It's it's exciting. Thank you so much.